Today we're going to study Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. The temptation and fall of man. Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Genesis chapter 3, the second point, is the fall of man. Genesis 4, 1 to 16 is Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 16 to the end of chapter 5 is the posterities of Cain and Abel. Genesis 6 to 9 is the flood. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. Genesis 11, about 1 to 9, is the Tower of Babel. But that, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, explains how the nations were divided in Genesis 10. So chronologically, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, precedes Genesis chapter 10. Then we have two more points in chapter 11, and we're ready for the second period patriarchal. Now, this morning, we're going to study Genesis 3. May I underscore it as best I can that next to the events in the life of Christ, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, is the most significant, uh, the most significant and far-reaching event in human history. Let me say that again. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, next to the events that, uh, that surround the life of Christ. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, is the most significant event in human history because the fall of man introduced all crime, war, bloodshed, disease, marital problems, man's inhumanity to man, the curse on nature, and eventually death, all of that into the human race and into our earth. The Bible says, uh, Romans 5, 12, Wherefore, by one man, sin entered into the world, and so death by sin. So death permeated all men, for that all sin. There are two great verses you ought to nail down, which form the commentary on Genesis chapter 3. And somewhere in your Bible or somewhere in your notes, you ought to write these two verses down. We're going to look at them later on. There are two verses that form the commentary on, uh, well, three verses, the commentary on Genesis 3. One of them is Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. That's the great passage, Romans 5, 12 to 21. That's the New Testament commentary on Genesis chapter 3. I read a, a, a great preacher who said one time, if I want to know how much of a student of the Bible and how much of a theologian my pastor friend is, when I go into his library, I pull down his Greek New Testament, and I open it up to Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. If it's clean, it's clean, he said, I know he's not much of a theologian. If it's a little soiled and dirty, I know he's somewhat of a theologian. Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, one of the difficult, most difficult and darkest sections in all the Bible. And when I get to it on Monday night, and I'm teaching Monday night, I'm going to go out on a Bible conference and ask Mr. Davidson to come in and teach and see. But when you come to Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, you come to an exceedingly difficult passage of Scripture. Because that passage teaches us that you and I were all involved in the Adamic sin. Now, a hundred years ago, when they studied the McGuffey readers, they used to me 
memorize a little statement. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. The modern man doesn't like that. Omer Khayyam didn't like it. Edwin didn't like it. A lot of men don't like it. A lot of atheists and Nazis. Matter of fact, there's some evangelical Christians that don't like it. But it's the bedrock to the explanation of the universality of sin. How come out of the entire human race, everybody universally sins? The explanation is Romans 5, 12 to 21, and back of that, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the most significant event in human history. It introduced all that we see today. There wouldn't be any, uh, no preachers today, no doctors, no hospitals, no morticians. You know, the last, a good friend, the last man to let you down, mortician. Joe saying this. No mortician. Uh, it were not for these sort of, a whole lot of things. A lot of, half of us would be out of the business. See? Half of us wouldn't have a job to do. Half of us would have to go back to farming, really, had Genesis chapter 3 not taken place. So this is, um, this is called the fall of man. Now, when we speak of the fall of man, you know we don't mean physically. When we speak of the fall of man, and that's a theological term, we mean the fall of man from a state of integrity into a state of sin. Adam and Eve were created in a state of integrity. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve were created with spiritual life. Adam and Eve were created in a state of fellowship with God. Now, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve and all mankind fell from that state of integrity, bearing the moral image of God, possessing spiritual life, in perfect fellowship with God. Adam and Eve fell from that state of integrity into a state of sin, and that, that event is called the fall of man. It's called the fall of not simply Adam, it's called the fall of man, because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in, uh, for as in Adam all die. In Romans 5, 12, for as by one man sin entered into the world and death came right in on the heels of sin, so death permeated through all men for that all sin. That is, we all sinned in Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, and we were all involved in the Adamic sin. Now, I believe this to be an historical event. I don't have any trouble with it. I believe it was actual history. I don't think it's a legend. don't think it's a myth. You say, why? Well, because Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 19 and other places. And Paul said it. And uh, both in Romans chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And John said it. He called that old serpent, the devil, Revelation 20, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, both the New Testament writers and Jesus himself put their stamp of authenticity upon this event. Not a myth, not a legend, it's actual history, actual person, a real Adam, Jesus said that, a real Eve, Jesus said that. So my argument, your argument's not with me. Your argument's with Jesus, see. 
man that denies historicity of Adam and Eve, his argument's not with the preachers, with Jesus Christ. We're only the messenger boys. Because Jesus authenticated the historicity of Adam and Eve. And the Lord Jesus in the New Testament authenticates also the historicity of the tempter. It was Satan. How do we know? Well, Jesus in John chapter 18 called him the father of lies. And Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, very distinctly denominates Satan as the one who tempted Eve. And John in Revelation chapter 12 and in Revelation chapter 20, both places, calls this tempter, the serpent, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. He denominates him. So the New Testament is clear that Adam and Eve actually existed and Satan was the real tempter. Well, now, what about the trees? Were they literal? Yes. If they weren't, what were they? Balloons? See? You always got to ask yourself, if they're symbolic, what are they symbolic of? I have no trouble, as long as I remember that it doesn't make any difference at all whether that was uh, an apple tree or a fig tree or a banana tree. See, the temptation did not lie in the nature of the fruit, but in the response of Adam to God's command. So I'm, I'm totally unconcerned whether it was an apple tree or a fig tree or a banana tree. You know why I'm saying that? Because Bob Ripley, who was an unbeliever, uh, ridiculed Genesis 3 because he said, no apple trees grow in that area. Well, I've never been there. I don't know whether they do or not. And as a matter of fact, the temperature and climate before the flood was altogether different than after the flood. Now, Bob Ripley was old, and there were a lot of things you could believe in, believe it or not. But I wouldn't believe that he was back there before the flood. <laughs> so he wasn't there. So who knows what an apple tree but really, it makes so. Are you all hearing me on this? Because unbelievers like to push Christians on this. That apple trees couldn't grow over there. I always say, will you please show me where it says it was an apple tree? But you know, in this television ad they had a couple of years ago, there was picking an apple tree. See, see it, you know, television's always going to distort biblical truth. You don't want to get your biblical truth in television distorted. Was an apple tree? Don't know what it was. Don't care what it was. Because the prohibition lay not in the nature of the fruit, but in Adam's response. Would he obey God, or would he not obey God? We well, say, why did God make such a simple thing, a means of such a profound temptation? Well, the reason he did is so that the force of the thing would, would lie in the response of Adam. Suppose he said, don't commit sex. Then Adam would have gotten it all involved in his emotions. But when he said, don't eat uh, all the trees you can eat, but don't eat of that one. That's a very simple one. Very clear. Adam's emotions are not involved in this one, you see. <laughs> then it becomes real crystal clear the question, will Adam obey God or will he not? What is sin? This obedience to God. And the question was real clear. So I have no problem. It's a literal tree. Yes. What about the serpent? Was it literal? Yes. Yes. But what we want, uh, first of all, if Balaam's ass could speak, see, then, and if we have ventriloquism today, 
that we ought not have any difficulty with this. Secondly, the serpent's form was changed. We don't know. It may have been a very beautiful creature. Third, remember, Eve had only been living a couple of days. That's why the, the devil came to Eve, not to Adam. Adam had more knowledge. Adam heard the command firsthand, don't eat. And then Adam told his wife she got it secondhand. When you say to your boy firsthand, would you mind coming in now? He comes in. When you send your boy after a second boy, and he hears it secondhand, it'll be about 15 minutes later. See? Well, so with Eve, without any reflection now, because the question why, why did you come to Eve? Why? Well, for several reasons. Well, one is she heard it secondhand. Adam heard it direct. Heard it direct. And Eve did not have the background of knowledge that Adam did. Adam was created first. So she did not know that this beautiful creature, used by Satan as a tool, did not have the capacity to speak. She, she didn't know that. But Adam did. And then one other thing that I want to say about it is that, that, that one other thing before we get into it, and that is this. There are three basic facts about sin that we ought all to nail down. There are three basic facts, whether it's Genesis or Revelation, there are three basic facts about the origin of sin. The three basic facts about the origin of sin, the beginning of sin, that we ought all to nail down. These are basic biblical and theological facts. I teach the doctrine of homardiology, which is the doctrine of sin in theology here. And I always start with this. Three basic facts about the beginning, the origin of sin. What are those three? Number one, God is not the author of sin. God is not the A-U-T-H-O-R. God is not the author of sin. He's not responsible for sin. God is not the author. Well, you say, does anybody say yes? Yes. Omer Kayon did. O thou who was pitfall with sin, didst beset the path I was to wander in. You're responsible, God. Or Ed Wynn, when he took that, there is a providence that shapes our ends, comma, rough view them how we may. There is a providence that shapes our ends, our ends, our final life. There is a providence that shapes our ends, comma. Rough view them, no matter how many mistakes we make. Rough view them how we make. That's beautiful. But Ed Wynn was an infidel, so he moved the comma over one. There is a providence that shapes our ends rough, comma. View them how we may. That's fatalism. See, that's Mohammedism. That's infidelity. And uh, there are a lot of men that believe. See, and any man that blames, let me say this, ultimately, any man that blames his circumstances or his children or his wife or whatever else it may be, instead of himself when he's responsible, is ultimately blaming God because God gave us our circumstances. Where did that begin? That began the garden. When God came to Adam and said, why did you do this? Adam said, the woman whom thou gavest me. Now, the emphasis is not on the woman whom thou gavest me. The emphasis is the woman whom 
thou gavest me. You gave me my environment and circumstances. Therefore, you're responsible, O God. You're to blame. No, no. God is not the author of sin. And that's clear. You know, one of the most important points in Genesis 1, normally overlooked, as at the end of every day, the Bible says God looked out at what he made and he saw that it was good. Number two day, he saw that it was good. Number three day, he saw that it was good. Number four, good. Number five, good. At the end of number six, it was very good. Why? Well, the reason why is that when Moses wrote that 1400 B.C., 1450 B.C., <clears throat> there was a very popular theory Popular today, popular today in the Near East, popular in our university, that there are two great principles in this world. One a great good principle and one a great evil principle wrestling against one another. Edgar Sheffield Blyton, dominant philosopher, now dead, but a dominant philosopher in America at Boston University, who is called a personalist. He believed in a personal God, but along with that, was another great eternal principle in this world. He called it the given, against whom God is struggling. Now, Augustine ran into it. It was called Manichaeanism, so-called Zoroastrianism. When I was over on the way to India last time, one of our flight stewards, a man, a very intelligent man, we got in a conversation with him, asked him what his religion was. He was a Zoroastrian. A Zoroastrian. Two ultimate principles. Why did they believe that? So that they can account for evil in this universe, not by God, but by this evil principle. We say no, no. Only one eternal principle, God. But God is not the author of evil. Number two basic principle. Evil and sin, evil and sin began in heaven. Evil and sin began in heaven. That's the second great principle. Evil and sin began in heaven with the fall of Satan or Lucifer. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 5. That is an exceedingly important verse. Ezekiel 28, 5. We're not going to turn there. Sin and evil began in heaven with the fall of Lucifer. Now, I'll quote it. If you look here, you got that all written down. I hope you're right, not falling asleep. Ezekiel 28:15. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. God speaking to Lucifer, now Satan, now the devil. Thou and he was the first one created. Lucifer was the five-star general of the angelic host. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways until the day uh, that uh, iniquity was found in thee. That tells us first that Satan was created. Only one eternal in this universe, God, Satan was created. Second, it tells us when Satan was created, that he was created perfect. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. That tells us third, that iniquity began within Satan, a moral being, by a free moral act.
Satan was, Lucifer, was a free moral being. Now, he doesn't have a body. You don't have to have a body to be a free moral agent. God's a free moral agent. He doesn't have a body. Angels are free moral agents. Therefore, they're called unclean spirits. Unclean, morally unclean. They sinned against God. And Satan, by an act of rebellion on the part of a free moral agent, uh, disobeyed God, revolted against God, and that's the day that sin began. But it didn't begin down on earth, it began in heaven. Number three, the third basic fact, is that sin began on earth. Sin began on earth by a free act of a free agent. Romans 5.12. Sin began on earth by a free act of a free agent. Romans 5.12. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Romans 5.12. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Now, there are three great passages I've given to you. Ezekiel 28.15. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Romans 5.12. Let's take our Bibles and look at one of them. Ecclesiastes Chapter 7, verse 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 12. Now, don't look over in the New Testament. Way over there in the Old Testament. Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then what is it? Ecclesiastes, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. A very exceedingly important verse. Interesting, in a book like this, you're going to find one of the most important verses on sin, on the origin of sin in all the Bible. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. Let's read it. Lo, this only have I found, that God made man out. Upright, morally and spiritually. Now, that doesn't mean he made him upright physically. If that's included. He didn't run around on four legs like an ape. He didn't mean that. He's talking about upright spirit. God made man upright, but God seduced man into sin. Know what it says? What it says? They have sought out many devices or inventions. And that doesn't mean they invented the cotton gin. Invention means evil inventions, evil devices. They have sought out many evil devices. So, when you look here, see that verse tells us the two basic things. How did God create man originally? Upright. Upright spiritually. Upright morally. He fell from that state of integrity into a state of sin. That's called the fall. But God created man upright. God is not responsible for sin. Secondly, they, they, Adam and Eve and all the human race, they sought out many evil devices. That is, they freely sinned against God. And the third thing in this verse is, he says, this I found out, which a lot of Christians, even to this day, haven't found out, see. What he's saying, it's important to know this. It's important to know this. God's not the author. He created man upright. Second, they sought. They are free moral agents. They sought out sin. And it's important to know this. Now, having laid that background, let's look at Genesis chapter 3 quickly. I've given you...
given you an outline, and that outline that I constructed this morning takes care of it fairly well. So we won't have to spend a lot of time on, uh, on Genesis 3 this morning. But there are seven things in Genesis chapter 3, just as you have it in the outline. Seven things. What is the first one? The temptation itself, is that the first one? On the outline, temptation itself. Secondly, degeneration. Third, confrontation. Number four, condemnation. Number five, response of Adam. Number six, provision of God. Number seven, prosecution. Now, let's look at those seven things. First of all, the temptation itself, Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Let's take our Bibles down, turn to Genesis chapter 3, and read those first five verses. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent, now the serpent, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto him, and of course this is Satan that is speaking by the use of an instrument, a tool. Now the serpent, because we know from the last, keep your finger there, turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Make it easy. We can look at others, but since it's easy to find the last book, let's turn over to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, and find out the identity of this serpent. Revelation chapter 20. We can also find it in Revelation 12. We can also find it in Ecclesiastes. But let's look at Revelation 20. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that's one of his names, that ancient, what? Serpent, who is the devil and, and bound him a thousand years. So who is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? Well, that's the devil, Satan. Satan is the one who's speaking, and that's made clear in the New Testament. Now back to Genesis chapter 3. He uses an instrument, some beautiful creature that was later uh, changed. But Satan is the real tempter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of field which the Lord God had made and said unto him, unto the woman, Yes, God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. No, God, you know, what God has said is don't eat of one. See, he puts the saddest, sorriest interpretation on that statement without saying an outright lie. Yes, God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the servant, we need the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God just knows that the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. But God knows good practically, experimentally, and evil theoretically. He hasn't experienced it. He hasn't sinned. He found out, so did Adam, that they did know good and evil, but they knew good by no longer being able to do it, and they knew evil now, practically and experimentally. Now notice the steps of Adam very quickly. He took three steps. And these are normal steps that Adam, that the devil uses when he comes to us, to tempt us. First of all, a doubt. Second, a denial. Third, a distortion. First, a doubt. 
prophecy cast doubt on the word of God. Yea, hath God said. The devil cast doubt on the word of God. May I say that whenever the devil begins to attack the Christian faith, he always begins by sowing doubt in the minds of men about the integrity and accuracy of the word of God. That's why the debate today in the United States and in Great Britain and in the continent is on the inerrancy of the Bible. See, that's where the debate is. And as I uh, teach the students in my theology class, the verbal inspiration of the scripture and inerrancy <clears throat> is like a fence around a group of cattle. Here's the fence, sealed in tight, and inside are all the cattle. Now, once you breach the fence, if only a little bit, the cattle are going to find it, one by one they're going to slip out till they're all gone. The fence in the illustration represents the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration inerrancy. Once you breach that and say, oh, the Bible has perhaps a few mistakes in the Old Testament, well, eventually out goes the doctrine of the virgin birth. And then next out goes the doctrine of eternal hell. And then next out goes the doctrine of the virgin birth. And then next out goes the deity of Jesus Christ. And eventually out goes the doctrine of a personal God, see? The fence that keeps it in is verbal inspiration. So the devil always begins by sowing a doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve and young seminarians in seminary. And I've seen this dozens of times. I've gone to college with boys who went on later to seminary. We had the director of a youth organization back in the late 40s, early 50s in this city, and I won't mention the youth organization, went on to a graduate university, even though he graduated from Dallas Seminary, and discarded many of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Men denied the inspiration of the Bible. The devil always begins with doubt. The second thing the devil does is, uh, after he gets Adam moving in his direction, secondly, a denial. God said you will die. What did the devil say? What did the devil say? You won't die. An outright denial. You see, he wouldn't caught Eve the first time with that. He sowed it out. God or mind thinking. Sowed it out. Then he came in with a denial. God said you will. No, you won't die. You won't die. That's simply camouflage. God threatens you with that because he wants to keep you from something. So third, we have a distortion, and that distortion is found in verse 5. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. What Satan said is, if God were really good, he would not withhold anything from you. But since he held back that fruit, he cannot be all good, but I won't hold anything back from you. See, Satan's counterfeit, and this is it. My plan will let you do what you want to do. Kind of like a, uh, a, uh, a syllogism. 
And I'm going to put this on the board because I hear this all the time, and you do also. Uh, this is kind of like a syllogism. Ma you know what a syllogism? Major premise, minor premise, and uh, conclusion. Major premise, restrictions, restrictions are not good. Minor premise, God's plan is restrictive. God's plan is restrictive. Therefore, conclusion, God's plan is not, well, what would it be? Good. See, that's, that's a syllogism. Major premise, minor premise, and conclusion. Restrictions are not good. God's plan is restrictive. Therefore, God's plan is not good. That's, that's Satan's basic syllogism. God's plan restrictions are not good. God's plan is restrictive. Therefore, God's plan is not good. Now, if the conclusion is not true, there's got to be an error either in the major premise or the minor premise. If this this conclusion, God's plan is not good, if that's true, then there's got to be an error either in the major premise or in the minor premise. Where is the error? Where's the error? Major premise restrictions are not good. That's the error. You see, but a lot of people don't believe it. Premarital sex is all right. No restrictions. The end justifies the means. No restrictions. Restrictions are not good. No restrictions are good. Don't walk out in front of the car. That's a restriction. Or else you'll get killed. Don't drink poison. That's a restriction. Or else you die. But see, men challenge that. They challenge that, you know, all the debate going on, on about pornography today and about uh, uh, what can be shown over television and a whole lot of things that go on <clears throat> are really essentially a form of syllogism. They're really essentially a form of, if it feels good, you see it on a bumper sticker, what? Do it. That's the form of this. If it feels good, do it. <clears throat> and this whole idea that I'm going to do my own thing, that's the form of this syllogism. Restrictions are not good. Restrictions are not good. Ought not to have anything that holds me down. Why? Because it, then it prevents me from developing the fullness of my personality. Yes? Well, if you go ahead and develop the fullness of your personality by not for example, uh, um, following any restrictions, being governed by any restrictions, and take a whole lot of drugs, then you're going to end up like some of the men in the newspapers the last week ended up on this trial. The basic premise is wrong. Restrictions are good. Had, did God place a restriction on Adam? Yes. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. But we've lived through the late 60s and the early 70s. And a lot of us today, and a lot of the young people come into our churches today, and a lot of us older people, way down deep, don't believe that major premise. We want to do our own thing. See? We want to do our own thing. We have a hard time doing what 1 Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews 13 says, and both of those tell us that 
in the local church, we are to respect the leadership, the elders, the deacons, whatever they need, you see, their decisions. We have the problem in the home. We have it in the church. We sure have it in society today. Restrictions are not good. God's plan is restricted. Therefore, God's plan is not good. No, no. The fallacy lies in that major premise. Restrictions are not good. Restrictions are good. And the man, I'll tell you, the man that doesn't like restrictions, and especially the restriction that if he doesn't trust Jesus, is going to pass out into eternity, is going to find that there are a whole lot of restrictions in hell. And I'm not saying that facetiously, no. There are restrictions. Restrictions, and they're good. That was the temptation that, that Satan gave to Eve and by which he caught Eve. All right, now let's go on to the second one quickly. And that one is degeneration, verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Degeneration, verses 6 and 7. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and tree desired to make one wise and took of the fruit thereof. Did eat, gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons. Quickly, look at two things. First, look at the rationalization of Eve. Now, I hope you'll all listen to this, because this is, you know, all Genesis 3 is very, very modern. Genesis 3, very, very modern. When Adam blamed his wife, see, environment, very, very modern. What Eve does here has a very modern ring. Eve says, he said, God has forbidden this fruit. I know that. She said that in verses 2 and 3. God said, don't eat of it. God has forbidden this fruit. But, but, all oh, the but, 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 eating the fruit will provide a good diet for me, provide a good diet for my husband, it will be aesthetically beautiful and will make it wise. So, therefore, surely achieving a good end justifies the means. That was Eve's rationalization. This eating, that, no, I know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. But, but, if I eat it, if I eat it, it'll be a good diet. It'll be aesthetically beautiful. It'll make me wise, doing good and evil. Surely my husband would want that. Surely God wants that. Surely I want that. So I'll go ahead and, even though God said don't do it, yet since it will achieve a good end, I'll go ahead and do it. See? So she let the end justify the means, and as the old saying has it, it's never right to do wrong, do right. Saul did the same thing. You find it through the Bible. Samuel, don't, don't enter into the priest's office. Samuel cut, waited. Kill all the animals. Again, later on, second time. Kill all the animals, all the, all the people, kill all the animals. That's the command, kill them all, all the animals, kill all of them. So when Sammy came, did you obey? Oh, yes, I obeyed God. Bah! What's that? <laughs> well, 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 he 
Uh, I say one very piously. <laughs> very I say one. And he got that sepulchre tone, you know, that you adopt sometime in the pulpit very piously. I saved that one to offer to the Lord. See? Yeah. Yes, save that one. But didn't God say destroy them all? Well, yes, he did. But I saved this one. Well, why? Well, well, because the end justifies the means. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Young girl says, I'm going to get married to a fella. You a Christian? Yes, she is. How about this fella? He Christian? No. No. You want to marry him? Yes. Why? He's so good, decent, kind, never tried to take any advantage of him, clean as a hound's tooth, decent, promised to go to church. Yes, I'm going to marry Don't you know what the Bible says? Don't marry an unbeliever? Yes. But, 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 when... When we get married, he's promised to go to church, and I'm praying for him, and I'm going to lead him to Christ. And so we're going to get married. Is it good to win a man to Christ? Yes, but it's never good to win a man to Christ by disobeying a clear command of the Word of God. The end doesn't justify the means. And that's in business, in business, business, in relationships, a whole lot of things. The end doesn't justify that was Eve's rationalization. It's as modern as the 20th century. And it's not right in order to achieve a good thing to violate a clear command of the Word of God. We stand on the principle. See. Success. And we live in a success-oriented age. Success is not the final mark of propriety and rightness. The final mark is, will it stand up to the measure of the principles of the Word of God? use that rationalization. So she ate, gave to her husband. He ate. They became a bundle of unholy desires. And then there came shame and fear immediately. They knew they had sinned. Third, confrontation. Verses 8 to 13. Confrontation. 8 to 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of Eve. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said to him, Where art thou? Where art thou? Not that God didn't know where he was, but as St. Augustine said hundreds of years ago, Adam was not lost to God's knowledge, but to God's fellowship. Where art thou, Adam? Means look where you are now, Adam. Where art thou? And he said, I heard the voice, thy sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Who told thee thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I command thee, thou eatest not? Man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this thou hast done? The woman, casting the buck again, said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now notice quickly, quickly, three ways that Adam tried to escape God. Three ways. Adam tried to escape God, and they're all three used today. First of all, he tried to hide from God. He tried to hide from God. So modern man tries to hide from God in pleasure or in sex or in whiskey. Try to hide from God to drown out his conscience. That won't work. No man can hide from God. Second thing he did, he made, made what? Garment of fig leaves, symbols of human righteousness. So what's the next step a man takes? Well, he says, if I'll turn over new leaves, quit my drinking, quit running around, 
join the church, get baptized. I'll cover myself with this good garment, and God will accept me. Now, God stripped the man of that. That was the second thing he did. What was the third thing he did? Try to escape God. He tried to escape God's judgment by making excuses. Oh, God, if you had not given me this woman, this would never happen. It's not the woman whom thou gavest, it's the woman who thou gavest me. You're responsible. You gave me my circumstances. God shattered all three of them. They're all three popular today. Men try to hide from God. They try to approach God by human righteousness, church membership, baptism, recitation of the creed, prayer and Bible reading. Those won't say, apart from faith in Christ. Those won't say. Or they try to excuse themselves, rationalize So God took three steps. First of all, he smoked him out. He smoked Adam out. He made Adam face his own sin. Secondly, he stripped Adam of those garments of fig leaves. He stripped him of those fig leaves. Smoked him out. Then he stripped him of those fig leaves, and then he sentenced Adam. May I suggest to you, we all look up here, you and I like, see what God is doing here is a lesson on soul winning. Lesson on soul winning. What did God do? Three things. First, first of all, he smoked Adam out and made Adam come out and face himself. What God said, Adam, where art thou? What he was trying to get Adam to do was, look where you are now, Adam, to make him face himself, to see the desperateness of his condition. He smoked him out. Then secondly, he stripped him of every human excuse. And then third, he passed the sentence. So what do we do when we witness to a man about his lost condition? First of all, we smoke him out. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. We smoke him out. We bring him to the place where he faces his own condition. If Barnhouse is to use, if you should die right now and stand at the gate of heaven and God should say to you, what right do you have to be in my heaven? What would you say? That's smoking a man out, making him face his condition. Or Dr. Schaefer used to say, ask a man, how good does a man have to be to get to heaven? And he stumbles around and you tell him rightly, as good as Jesus, for all of sin comes short of the Jesus Christ. That's God's standard. Fella, do you measure up to that? No, nobody does. Right, nobody does. Then if you don't, you will never make it to heaven. Make a man face himself. Then he's going to give some excuses, rationalization. He's going to hide behind his church membership, baptism, good work, strip him. Rip him of all. John the Paul couldn't be saved by that. Nobody could. Martin Luther couldn't. John Wesley couldn't. Rip him of that. And then third, don't let him, don't let him hide behind some excuses, the woman whom thou gavest to me. Then third, give him the sentence, as God did. The soul that sinneth it shall die. My friend, you don't get right with God, I say this kindly to you. I say it kindly. On the authority of the word of God, you don't have any chance 
I'll take my chances when I get at the bar. No, you've already been to court. Your case is already decided. You're lost and under the judgment of God. And the judgment of God, like the sword of Damocles, hangs upon you. The only thing that separates you from eternal hell is that slight thread of life you've got right now. And God gave us a good pattern of witnessing in this section. And then number four, condemnation, chapter 3, 14 to 19. First on sake, let's read it. That's about all we can do. Verses 14 to 19. First on sake, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the battle, every beast of the field, so on. Now that's on the instrument. That's on the serpent itself. Verse 15, on Satan, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thee, thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel, and the seed of the woman is Jesus. And the heel of Jesus was bruised at the cross. And the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush, bruise, crush the serpent at the end of the millennium when he casts the devil into the lake of fire forever and ever. That will be finally fulfilled. Secondly, the woman. Verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in conception. Second, thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall tyrannize over thee. Two judgments upon the woman. First, Pain in childbearing. And if you married and your wife has gone through that nine-month period of pregnancy, you know what, she knows what that thing will be. That's the result of the fall, pain in childbearing. And secondly, secondly, she will be tyrannized. Was she always subject to her husband? Yes. But prior to the fall, she was subject to a perfect man, you see. And the only one now is my wife. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're going to catch that about 10 minutes from now. <laughs> no, no, no perfect man. See, He was subject before the fall. But now, listen, he's now subject to a man who can be a tyrant. And here enters all the marital problems that have troubled the human race from the dawn of human history. Now, marriage slips from the personal and the tender to the instinctive urges and passions. And now she's subject to a tyrant who often brutalizes her. That's the curse upon the woman. Then the curse upon man. Verse 17, Because thou hast hearkened the voice of thy wife, eating the tree which I command thee, saying, Thou shalt first curse it as the ground for thy sake. You're going to have to plant your cotton sometimes three times. Never before the fall. It's cursed for your sake, your sake, your sake. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth thee. Thou shalt eat herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Did man work before the fall? Yes. But probably only about two hours a day. But now these sinners, too much idle time creates trouble. So God curses the earth. And he's going to have to fight against the soil. Then finally he says, Dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. Then the next one, the response of Adam, verse 20, quickly. Adam called his wife's name Eve. A great act of faith. A great act of faith. What did God say? In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely 
die. Die. You'll both die. But God said in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. That means my wife is going to have a child. So his faith reached over that thread of the death sentence to that great promise of God, the seed of the woman, my wife's going to have a child. And Adam embraced that promise in a great act of faith. That was a great act of faith. Great act of faith. It also shows the unity of the human race. She's going to be the mother of all what? That all races trace back to an original pair, Adam and Eve. And then verse 21, the provision of God. For Adam also and for his wife, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, that was necessary. They were naked. Prior to the fall, there was no shame attached to nakedness. All these nudist cults try to go back to a pre-fall stage. They all fail at that point. Can't. Can't. God clothed them. God clothed them. But without Saul was involved, Adam could have made those clothes. Without Saul involved, Adam could have made those clothes. What God is doing is preaching the gospel here. Just as when God saved me, he stripped me of the old fig leaves of human righteousness. Baptism, which I had been, church membership, which I was, reading the Bible, which I did, praying, which I did, stripped me of all the fig leaves of human righteousness and clothed me in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. See? God preached the first service. And, you know, it only took about five minutes. <laughs> God preached the first service. Took him about five minutes. And then finally, let's look at the last one, the judgment of God, prosecution. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand, take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, killed the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove man out and placed east of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned, revolved every way to guard the way of the tree of life so that Adam could not get back into the garden and eat of the tree of life and live forever in that cursed state so he could die someday. Now, let me have about two minutes and I'm through real quietly. Here's the greatest event in human history. And I want to close this. God expelled Adam. That was a judicially right. Secondly, God saw to it that his outer environment, outside the garden first, would reflect his inner environment. See? Now, here's the great plan of redemption. Now, you all look up here. Three things. First, God made redemption possible the possibility of redemption, by expelling Adam from the garden so he could not eat of that tree of life and maintain himself in physical life in that cursed state. How would you like to live in that body? Some of you young enough don't mind it, but some of us getting a little older. How would you like to live in that body all the rest of eternity? You wouldn't like that, would you? That's why God sent Adam out. That was an act of mercy. He made redemption possible because Adam could die and God could then give him a new body. Secondly, there's the promise of redemption. Genesis 3.15.
the seed of the woman will crush your head. And then third, there's the picture of redemption. First, the possibility expelled it. Second, the promise, Genesis 3.15, the first promise of Jesus. I call Genesis 3.15 the acorn of biblical prophecy because out of it comes all the other prophecies. And then third, the picture of redemption. Genesis 3.20, when God did what he did with me at the age of 14, he stripped from me, he stripped off me the garment of self-righteousness and clothed me in the perfect righteousness of Jesus so I can think when he shall come with trumpets down, I then and shall in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. One announcement. One announcement. November the 2nd, Monday night, is our what? Trustee banquet. I'd like to encourage every man to get his tickets this morning and be with us. See, uh, you know, like that old slogan, we're going to get you. <laughs> so we're going to keep you. So we hope you'll go out. We, we're going to have a tremendous program. Our colleague choir is going to sing. We're going to have testimonies. Jimmy Latimer bring it. Now, Jerry Best and the ladies are going to have the tickets out there. Go ahead and get the two for you and your wife. And you might want to bring some of your children or some of your friends. Our Father, we thank thee for thy grace and goodness. Thank thee for this great chapter. We but scratch the surface. But help us, Lord, not simply to read it as a chapter in history. Help us to recognize that we were there, that in Adam's fall, we sinned all, that I was there, and that this represents my heart of rebellion against God, and my shame, and my fear, and my death, and my shame. At the same time, help us to thank thee, O God, as we do, for that great promise of the Savior, for that picture of redemption given to us right at the beginning of human history, that men are saved not by the fig leaves of human righteousness, but by the death of the Lamb and the provision of the garment of righteousness and help every one of us as we walk out of here this morning to be sure, each one of us, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.